Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I am your host, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes helping leaders to navigate the disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that today our guest is Bob Rosenberg. Bob served as the chief executive officer of Dunkin' Donuts from 1963 until his retirement in 1998. Under his leadership, the company grew from a regional family business to one of America's best known and loved brands. Bob received his MBA from Harvard Business School and in just weeks after his graduation, at the age of 25, he assumed the position of CEO and he'll tell us how that transition happened. After retiring from Duncan, Bob taught in the graduate school at Babson College and served for many years on boards of directors of other leading food service companies, including Domino's Pizza and Sonic restaurants. So every entrepreneur dreams of expanding their business from around the corner to around the world. Well, today those dreams are doubtful for many. Hope can be found from the story of a CEO who managed to do so despite decades of economic downturn, near bankruptcy and constant change. Bob joins the show today to share his insight and lessons learned from his experience taking Duncan from 100 shops to 6,500 outlets. These lessons are captured in his new book, Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned from running Dunkin' Donuts. And the takeaway for me from this conversation is while the challenges we're facing are different, Bob navigated a wide range of changes and was able to be incredibly successful during them. So Bob, can you tell us a little bit about your history and your story before we jump into more details about how you got there? My pleasure, Marie. Thank you for inviting me. Basically, my father had started a business in the food service business, a business he knew. He was an eighth grade educated guy, but a real talent as an entrepreneur. And he had started this industrial feeding business, trucks after the Second World War that went around to small factory sites to, to feed consumers. That business flourished for a while. He had a partner, his brother-in-law, who was a CPA, balanced between his entrepreneurial zeal and the learning of, of a more educated brother-in-law. The partners ran into some trouble when vending machines came on the scene in the late 1940s in order to keep their hopes alive for a successful business. By chance, they started a, a runoff of one of the products they sold, coffee and donuts. Through a couple of iterations, a lot of luck, a lot of serendipity, and three incarnations, the beginning of a business called Dunkin' Donuts. And off I went to college, the army, graduate school, and um, the partners didn't get along. They broke up. My uncle took the $350,000, which was the then book value of the business and the buyout numbers that required to break the partnership and started a competitive business called Mr. Donut to compete against Dunkin'. When I came back in 1963 after graduate school, uh, fully expecting I was going to join the family business, but never expecting to be called upon to run it. My father had spun out six or seven other food service businesses, a vending machine company, a cafeteria company, pancake houses, hamburger stand chain, 
a pizza operation, a delicatessen. So it was a hodgepodge of businesses. And my uncle, who had just focused on his Mr. Donut brand, was overtaking. So there were 100 Dunkins in 1963 and 80 Mr. Donuts. They were about to overtake us. It caused my father nothing but heartache because he was always concerned about who would get credit for starting this new way of going to business. You know, it's not only business is competitive, but you can imagine when the family element and family competition was added into it. And my father had tried to sell the business. He was so frustrated. His earnings had sort of plateaued at $100,000. And he tried to sell it for a million and a half dollars. My second year business school, I went with him in New York, couldn't sell it. He turned the day-to-day operations over to an executive vice president. He couldn't meet the challenge and figure out what to do. And I guess in frustration and no other options, my dad turned to his young then, me, 25-year-old cocky son, in order to try to undo the hodgepodge and see him figure things out and, and help him become the millionaire he always wanted to be. And also to be back his arch competitor, his brother-in-law, his former partner. Wonderful. It's a really exciting story. So let's jump into some of the details. How did you accomplish every entrepreneur's dream of growing a small regional business into a global multi-billion dollar brand? And I realize that's what a whole book is written about. So the couple of minute answer is insufficient, but let's give our listeners kind of the big overview and then we'll go into some more details. The book is the 35 years is broken into six distinct areas. Some as short as three years, some as long as nine. Basically my feeling was that the customer, the competition, the technology is constantly changing. Each required a unique response in terms of strategy and organization and activities. So the, the first era, which was when we first got there, and, and I think the, the more appropriate each of those is to those circumstances I just described, the more likely you are to be successful. Fundamentally, I believe if you don't have the strategy right, you don't have the organization right, if you don't get those two things right, there's little else you can possibly do to create success. In the first era, luckily through business school, I had learned the language of strategy and I had taken courses in retailing, and I had to use the company as a model for some of my answers and some of my papers. And I came to the conclusion, that even as a young student, that young businesses can starve from lack of enough resources of people and money, but they can also falter and fail as a result of indigestion, having too much on the plate. So in the first era, the first five years, 1963 to 1968, we both basically focused on one of the businesses in Universal Food Systems, the company that I was asked to helm, these eight little businesses. And it was uh, uh, the Dunkin' Donut shops that were in our midst. And we basically, they, they were all different varieties of configurations, styles, menus, some served breakfast and some had scrambled eggs and uh, hamburgers and hot dogs. It was not what I had left when I went away to college. It had been changed, I had lost confidence and this, this simple standardized business. So we went back to that business focused on putting it in certain markets in the first five years was extraordinarily successful. As we focused and we, we dropped the experimentation in new businesses and we exploited, as I said, the diamond in the rough that was in our midst. And we were incredibly successful. And because my father had always wanted to be a millionaire, he, he was scarred by the depression. I had to go public quickly. So the $100,000 within five years mushroomed with this strategy to $800,000, 50% compounded rate of growth in earnings, mind boggling. 
The next era was not quite so successful. As a matter of fact, it was near disastrous. I changed the mission from a focused in donut and coffee company to a portfolio of franchise businesses. Wrong decision. <laughs> For the next five years, faltered, came to the point where the board, we were now publicly owned company, had basically said to me, we've had enough of you. Earnings had faltered. We had a loss of a million seven hundred thousand dollars in 1973. Luckily, I had gone back, found out what I was doing wrong, how to correct it, and began to put in place the kind of processes and procedures necessary to put guidelines in, so God rails that I wouldn't make the same kind of mistakes prospectively. We began to mature. I began to mature, lost some of my cockiness, became a lot more humble as a result of that near-death experience. And we began to plan the next four eras based upon the learning we came out of the second era, which was near disaster. And, and it's in those processes that we'll be able to uncover together, you know, some of the lessons of how does a, how do you scale a business? What does it take? And I've synthesized it down into those areas through the lens of what I think are the key four elements, functions that a CEO must do that cannot be delegated to others. You can have help in doing them, but it's your primary responsibility to ensure they get done. That's the creation of strategy, the recruitment, retention, and motivation of an organization that can implement that strategy, communication to all constituencies to, to align them behind the strategy to get alignment, and the last is to manage through crisis because it comes into every life and into every business. So each of the eras is told through those four lenses. And that's sort of the, the, the overall direction of, of why I wrote the book and how I wrote the book and how I organized the book. So as we think about those four areas, and I'm going to read them back, it was strategy, recruitment and retention, communication, and managing through crisis. Given where we are now in a COVID crisis, we're facing social justice questions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how do we integrate those into running our businesses. We're looking at ramping up the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. All of those, to me, can certainly bring about a sense of crisis for just about everyone running a business. I served on a number of public company boards, and the three lessons that I come away with in terms of crisis management, the first is pre-preparation. In each of the boards that I sat on, at least one board meeting a year, full day, would be dedicated to what we would call risk assessment. In the food service business, which is where I really focus my attention and time, you know, we had to worry about health concerns. God forbid we should make someone sick with our food. What would happen? Who had done it before? How did they respond? What worked and what didn't work? Who would talk to the Board of Health? Would we have a, a health inspector on board as part of our team? When would the CEO move, to, move into the community? Who would be that team that, that would be charged and tasked with the responsibility of managing that particular crisis? So a, a lot of my belief is that you can begin to do these kind of risk assessments and it in anticipation of them occurring, look at best practices, look who's done it well and, and, and poorly. For example, food maker Jack in the Box had a health scare in the 80s that was dreadfully mismanaged. Chipotle took them two years to recover. Food maker, they did it a little bit faster. Jack in the Box, it took almost 10 years to recover. So there are lessons in there that you can get prepared for. 
The second lesson I found was that you put together in advance a team that can meet and respond to the particular crisis at hand. People who have real value to add to solve the particular problem at hand. So for the sake of argument, let's say that one of the big issues that we faced was someone hacking our consumer data and information. Who would be on that team? Almost always the CEO, because these are always business, there's always challenges that are existential threats to the business. So they're very survivable to business if they're not handled well. But it could be data processing, it could be IT specialists, could be an outside advisor to be on the team. And then you allow the rest of the organization to run the business on a day-to-day basis. Everything has to be run. You can't have everybody involved in trying to solve the crisis. So put aside a, a separate team. The third thing I found that was extraordinarily important is you have to over-communicate when things are tough. People's lives are at stake when there's a challenge and a threat to the enterprise or the, whatever it is. And it is important for the CEO or the leader to be able to authentically communicate what we have answers for, what we don't, and to convey, if you really believe it, a sense of optimism that together we'll get through this. And it requires what I would call hyper-communication to an entire organization, to all constituencies about what's going on, what are the challenges, what are we doing, what can we say authentically we've dealt with or we have our arms around, what's still yet to be done, and and where we're going and where we're heading. So those would be the three kinds of lessons I would offer as help to anybody who is concerned with and should be about how to deal with with massive change and threats. You talked about humility. Can you give us just a quick comment on moving from cocky to humble, and then we'll come back and go into more detail on how you've navigated the challenges you faced? In the second era, as I changed the mission and began to drive the company in the wrong direction and earnings started to, to level off and then begin to falter, I was sitting in my living room reading David Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, the Kennedy and Johnson's administration of the Vietnamese War, run by Ivy Leaguers and the best and the brightest our country had to offer. But they weren't going into the hamlets and towns where the war was being waged. Basically, Halberstam suggested that that the problem lay with the leadership that was suffering from what he called hubris, which is the Greek word for arrogance. And I sat in that chair and said, goodness gracious, Halberstam could just as well be talking about me. And we as a management team caucused, I explained what I had read in the book, took responsibility for my actions, wrong strategy, wrong aiming point, trying to grow as I did in the first era of the company at 50% compounded, unrealistic, unachievable, wrong aiming point, what the cost of that was, wrong mission, a portfolio of franchise businesses opposed to a focus business. We went back to what we were doing well, closed down a couple of businesses we started and activities that we were engaged in, focused on a much narrower remit in terms of activities, got our arms around the business instead of opening 140 units, we went back to 40, put in planning processes, procedures, went out to visit 100 stores, visited with people in the last three feet of the sale, began to get input from a broader range of people, set up better guard guardrails for the board so that Mission Creek wouldn't occur prospectively. It was a transformational moment for me personally that really I awoke and really hopefully learned the lesson and tried not to repeat it ever again. I want to hear more about your personal transformation because those are the the most difficult moments for us as as humans and leaders and 
how you were able to continue to inspire people to follow you as you acknowledge that you made, made some mistakes. So for our listeners, I encourage you to think about what was the biggest mistake you have made in your leadership career? And were you able to own it and pivot quickly? How did you do that? We are talking to Bob Rosenberg about his book and the lessons he learned from running Dunkin' Donuts for 30 plus years. So Bob, you talked about your pivot when you realized that the direction you were taking the company wasn't working. And what I really want to get to is so often we as leaders can say we made a change and we gloss over the struggle that we go through to admit it, to maintain credibility, to what, what were those tough days like when, when you read about the, the book you talked about and realized that you may be the problem? It was costly. It, it, a combination of sadness, shame. I, I would drive to business school every day with a close friend. And uh, after business school, and one of the things I said a- a- after strategy was organization. I was intent on surrounding myself with people I liked, trusted, and believed in. So my friend, Bill Beebe, went off to Goldman after, after business school. And I tried to recruit him. It took me about a year or two to recruit him to join me as CFO of the company. And he, in turn, then brought people he had worked with in the finance department at Goldman as well, followed by the name of Tom Schwartz. So we started to build a team of people that were really outstanding, you know, able to punch way above their weight for a small regional donut and coffee company in New England, luring them out of this prestigious Wall Street company. Very few people in those days went into food service. Bill Beebe lost confidence in my leadership and did, the, in my opinion, the right thing. When that occurred to him, he basically left the company. So it was sadness as a result of losing a real close friend and comrade at the time. Luckily, Tom Schwartz decided to stay on the other, the other direct recruit out of Goldman, and he, he and I stood together as partners for years. But what led me out of that was basically, I, I think, persistence is, I guess, in my life, I never suffered really huge setbacks, but, but some setbacks and found out that they actually turned into advantages as time went by. Didn't get into the college of my choice, went to the second choice in terms of hotel school and, and uh, found out that I came alive, got great grades. Long story short, it worked out for the best. A lot of things occurred like that. So that I realized that as long as I got another bite of the apple and we could carry on, and the team was really extraordinarily talented and supportive of me and helped me and had a, a lot of ideas on how to fix things, that as I began to get less shoot from the hip, less intuitive, and more thoughtful that they were there to help. So it was a combination of things, but primarily it was my team that helped me through it. And, and I guess a willingness for me to face reality, which I think as a CEO, that's one of the key elements you have to be able to do to see the world as it is, not as you want it to be, but as it really is. Defining reality, easy to say, but very, very hard to do and requires a lot of thought, a lot of data collection, a lot of sifting through information. And we did come to, to, to realize what the reality, what was our capability, what could we do, what couldn't we do. And that was at the forefront of our mind in each of our planning sessions as we continued on throughout the ages. But it was a 
the answer to your question, it was, it was a, a, a tough time. Also, our attorney wasn't a member of management at age 58, dropped dead. And I was able to recruit one of my friends again from this time out of Cornell, where I'd gone to hotel school, in, in, in that job. And he was of immense help, a fellow by the name of Larry Hammond, of immense help uh, to guiding the company. So I really was blessed with incredible teammates who, who helped me through and who helped me solve the problems. And, and by the time the board had had enough of me, I, we had already come to these conclusions and set in motion a much more reduced uh, strategy and got our arm back around the business. And we were on our way to success again. And I had convinced the board to give me one more quarter before they pulled the trigger. Luckily, they acceded to my request and uh, we never looked back again. But, but it was a harrowing time and a sad time and a shameful time. Thank you for sharing the personal side, because I think a lot of people right now are, no matter how optimistic they are, are really doing soul searching and feeling that sense of shame or embarrassment that no matter what they try in the midst of this difficult time right now, they're facing, in fact, I had a conversation with someone this morning who's facing yet another round of layoffs because they're in a business that, that involves people being physically present in an environment where people can't so safely be physically present. And no matter how much this is the fault of the pandemic, I think people who are thoughtful can't help but feeling some responsibility for how the situation is unfolding. I can fully appreciate that. In another era later on, we were basically under hostile attack. And in order to create an ESOP, an employee stock ownership program, try to put away some stock to prevent from the hostile predator, I basically had to lay off about 60 people. And I'd always viewed our team as, as a family. And it was the hardest decision I ever had to come to. I put it off and delayed it for ages until we were actually you know, on the verge of being struck. And so I can fully sympathize. When you have to part with teammates, it's almost like family members. It is excruciating. So what would you tell people who are navigating through this? What helped you make it through those days? Well, the first lesson really of management, of leadership, is the survivability of the business. You have to have business survive. And sometimes that requires unbelievably difficult choices. As the leader, you're called upon to try to do the best you can to sort through the information to define reality as it is and make those hard choices. And it can be, it can be tearing at you. Uh, don't want to minimize it for a second. It is heart-wrenching and, and sad. And, and it, in, in my life, that, that came to pass. But it requires to be done. Otherwise, the entire enterprise fails and everybody suffers. Consumers, the staff, everybody goes. So sometimes you have to do those kind of hard things for survivability. And, and that's what's going on now. This pandemic is disastrous. In my industry, the National Restaurant Association says there's 650,000 restaurants in existence. 150,000 of those are probably will close permanently. That will put a million and a half to two million people out of work. I mean, it is heart-wrenching. And those million and a half to two million people, many of them are supporting families. So it's impacting millions beyond. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's and, and that's why we need government help at this moment in time, because when the dust clears, those businesses that invested in digitization and were able to meet the customer's needs through home delivery, through online ordering, 
through understanding how to create loyalty clubs, through social networking, those companies that were able to do that, those people, whether they're independents or chains, they will survive and they will grow. The business had been over, the industry had been overstored. So they will fill that gap and begin to hire those people. But that takes time and people have to live in the interim. And the only one that can help us right now is the government. It is extremist. So uh, let's hope that the government comes to some conclusion about how to get us through this bridging. Yeah, I am in agreement that not only your industry, but across industries, we are seeing extreme hardship for individual people and families and organizations who really want to do good work and have been massively disrupted. Absolutely. So as entrepreneurs facing a low point in their business, what can they learn that we haven't already talked about from you when Duncan was facing close to bankruptcy? Basically, again, back to good planning, the right team of people to implement it. The same, the same lessons that I learned later on apply during all of the different eras. And for, for entrepreneurs uh, today, I think the best thing to have is persistence, the ability to, to, to be able to carry on through all of this sorrow and all of this tumult and a belief that, that there is a better day. I mean, you know, mood is a strong element in our lives. But for me, moods come and go, and they're really nothing more than an interpretation of the future. If you can focus on a future that is brighter and better, that will affect your mood, and that will affect the mood of your entire organization as you try to lead them through it. They will watch your every body language, your facial expressions. They will watch every element of it. So when uh, during the hostile takeover, when we were in play, I used to, to call it management by walking around. I would talk to everybody at home office and, and allow them to ask questions. But I really believe that we were going to get through it okay. And luckily, at one minute to midnight, we did, as I describe it in the book. And, and, and also during the time of my stupidity in the second era of the business, basically knowing that there might have been a better day as soon as I could see it, I could then convey it. And I think that's why the board gave me more, another chance and gave me another quarter is I authentically, authentically believed we had solved the problem and I could convey that to the team. I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I knew we were on our way. I authentically, to my very core, believed that. And I could convey that both to the board and I could convey that to the rest of the team because I believe it. You know, I think people can smell out a fake pretty quickly. And so you can't, if you don't really believe it, you can't do it. So you've got to have a fundamental belief that there is a way through it. It may be painful. It may be hard. We may lose some of our comrades along the way, but there will be, there will be a sunrise. There will be a time when we'll come out on the other side. You know, that's what the job of a leader is, is to follow me over here. We're going to go over there. And if you're going to the right place, it's a, it's, it's a big benefit you provide. In my second era, I was taking them over the wrong place, over the cliff. Like on this top beforehand. But when, when I felt that we were on the right track, we knew we were going, the right objectives, the right strategy, I could convey that authentically to people. And I believed to my inner core, and that was helpful. And I think that's where it starts. All organizations start at the top. If the top isn't right in terms of values or in terms of direction, almost everything after that pretty much falters. When we look at our the innovative leadership competency model, the first on the list is professionally humble 
and then unwavering commitment to right action. And I've heard both of those. And then later on the list is highly authentic and reflective. And again, I hear that, that you're able to manage, and, and I, I like the, or appreciate the reference to managing mood and understanding that one, it's contagious, and two, that finding a way to be positive and constructive without being delusional is really helpful to inspire people to actually follow you. If you're going off the cliff, they don't want to follow you. <laughs> For good reason. But, you know, moods come and go. And, and it really, in my view, uh, this I learned actually from a linguist, uh, followed by Fernando Flores. It really is, is, is your interpretation of the future. If you can see a future that is joyful and successful and winning, uh, then I think you can, can, you can design a mood. If you don't, if you see the future as dismal, despair, hardship, agony, it's going to be contagious. And that's the mood of the organization. It's going to be you know, remorseful and sad. Yeah, the lack of hope, I think, is one of the most deadly experiences for success of an organization or a leader or a department or a family. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's right. People like so to win. That was the culture we had. We had a winning culture. And that's part of the responsibility of leadership is to design strategies that are reasonable within grasp, that aren't overreaching, that aren't crazy, uh, that will allow people a sense of victory and winning. I encourage our listeners to think about what can you be optimistic about in this very complex point in time. And as Bob has said, if there is no positive future to move toward, it is hard to get up in the morning and be committed to engaging in the most constructive manner possible, whether you're running an organization or a family or not, that each of us has the opportunity to contribute to society and win in our venue. We are talking to Bob Rosenberg about his new book, Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned from Running Dunkin' Donuts. So you've been teaching in a graduate school for a while. How would you help listeners put into action the insights that you learned over your decades of navigating significant disruption? Basically, for us, it really was a commitment to planning people and products, the three Ps. And in the book, I go through a very granular look at the whole planning process, how we engage the board, how we began to look out in advance, how we model the business. But it started with us with, with a clear understanding of what our purpose was as a business, what our mission was, what we wanted to be within a three-year time period. If it didn't have the words to be, it really wasn't effectively a description of our mission. And it would be as much about what we would not be, given my last bad experience of trying to be a portfolio franchise business as opposed to being the preeminent donut co and coffee company in each of the markets we elected to compete in. Then we would set the two or three critical objectives, the quantitative benchmarks that most measured success in our case, it was earnings per share of 15%, return on investment at the unit level for the franchisee of at least 15%, and a debt ratio. There's a million things to measure in the world. It's very important to get down to really the critical elements that most define success, whether it be in a division, a department, or the overall company. Then the third thing we did in planning was basically to define the 
four to six levers, the strategic levers that we would pull to bridge scarce resources to the achievement of those objectives. Whether United States government or a little company, there's only so much energy, money, and time and manpower you have available. In my view, in the view of our team, there are no more than at most six, maybe should be narrowed down to four or five strategic levers you could pull at any one time if you would attempt to be successful. And the last were tactics. What are the specific granular steps to support each of those strategic, the four or five strategic initiatives that we had? So that was the planning process. And it started at the board level. We would look out in advance, do a SWOT analysis in one meeting, and next with five-year plan, then next would be an annual plan. And then we look at a table of organization to see the depth of the organization. As for organizing, basically uh, the three things that I would submit that helped us recruit an above average, high performing team were one, define the assignment carefully. The better you define the assignment, the more likely you are to fill it with the right person. And as the assignment changes, as the company changes, you have to then be able to move people into other jobs where they may be more appropriate and pick new people for that assignment. The second thing that I picked up along the way after defining the assignment was basically, I didn't try to hire someone who was able and, and, and fill a job with someone who was good at everything. I basically found through Gallup and company and the work that we had done with them, people all have natural strengths and weaknesses. It's far easier to build on someone's strengths than to try to remediate the weakness and to look at the total complementarity of the team to achieve it. So the marketing person is gonna look at the world in a different way than the finance person. And that's expected and that's part of the balance. And the third thing I would look at would be to fit the culture. In our case, culture was teamwork. We, you know, we really operated together as a team for 20 years. We were strong and complimentary. We had different backgrounds. Some were as a head of operations started as a donut man, but it's Rhode Island. And I have no idea what his educational background was, but he was a great operational guy, trusted by every franchise owner, great intuition with respect to people. We had other people who came from marketing backgrounds, some from finance backgrounds, different people, but they fit the culture. They liked to win, they were aspirational, they were truthful, they were honest, and, uh, and they liked working the team. They, when you pick up the curtain and look behind any successful business, in my view, rarely will you find someone on a white horse coming in and solving the problems and leading the team in a way. It, it Bennett basically is at least a couple, in our case, it was maybe as many as five or six people that basically complemented each other, loved each other, respected each other, no backbiting, that worked together, and, in, in a culture that really worked and, and suited the purpose. Then the last thing maybe, the fourth thing, and I said three, but I say fourth, is when things go wrong, it's the leader's job to take the pain. And when things go right, make sure that you share the glory and the acknowledgements and the compensation so that people feel rewarded, well taken care of and acknowledged for their contribution and what they created. I love what I'm hearing. I wonder in our current environment, because you've talked about personal qualities, and, and this is of interest to me right now as we are looking at corporate social responsibility, environmental stewardship, social justice questions. I heard words like aspirational, truthful, honest, team-focused, love, respect. You mentioned using the Gallup work 
that focuses on strengths and complementarity. Do you also hire for personal qualities like integrity? Do you, did you actually interview for those kind of qualities and character? Maybe we might call that. Yes. Yes. You know, people's values and people's styles are extraordinarily important because if you come into a culture and you don't fit those, that those exist and those that you want to perpetuate and build upon, it'll be destructive and, and disastrous. So to me, integrity is acting consistent with your principles. And if your principles are bad, yeah, you, you're not going to fit in our team. Just if they're not consistent with the other principles that we as a team adhere to and believe in, you just won't fit. There won't be a fit in culture. So you have to explore sort of the, I call them the, what psychiatrists and psychologists call uh, the big five personalities, adaptability, openness, uh, neuroses, uh, introvert, extrovert, which I didn't really draw much attention to. I found introverts worked as well as extroverts, but we, we looked for people that were highly adaptable and highly open, people that were conscientious. And so we did look at those characteristics, but values, also are, are important and, and what do people really value in their lives. For us, trust was a big one because we had a lot of people in far flung all over the world who looked to us for guidance in terms of new programs, new products, new designs. And they had to have trust in us that we were competent, that we were sincere, that we were caring and that we were reliable. Those are the four tests that I outline in the book about trust. So we were very clear about how, how to build trust, if you yourself were trustworthy and how to evaluate trust in others. So all of those qualities and characteristics were very carefully thought about and defined. Can you say again how you evaluated trustworthiness? Trust is at the heart of all successful relationships and absent in all unsuccessful relationships. It's the most critical ingredient at all in a relationship. So whether it's a relationship with a customer, with a cohort, with a franchise owner, with a wife, is fundamentally, uh, and here again from Fernando Flores, the, the linguist, my friend from uh, Chile, basically he proposes and I adopted his definition of how do you know if you're trustworthy? Given too soon, trust given too soon, you're naive. Withheld too long, you run the risk of being a cynic. There are four tests that he proposes that I, that I agree with. The first is sincerity. Your public and private conversations are the same. The second is competence. Competence is not the same as never making a mistake. Competence is the ability to live up to the standards of the job. So as CEO of a company, I will tell you, honestly, I made lots of mistakes. But over time, basically, we were able to, to deliver earnings per share and the promises that we made, both to franchisees, to stockholders, to staff members, to all of our constituents consistently over time. Within that framework, there were decisions I made where I was highly premature. I tend to be a bit impetuous. I reacted quickly to, to morphing conditions around me and started some false things. But overall, we were able to deliver. That was what I was being measured on. That's how my competence was being decided. Not that I never made a mistake because God knows I did. The, the third element is really reliability. We make promises in the world. And, and we are held to whether or not we keep those promises. Again, another measurement of competence, but that's reliability. Now, events occur, the world's stochastic, stuff happens, so things come in. And what you do not do is you never ignore your commitment and your promise. You go back to the person you promised and say, I know I promised you this. Can I make a new offer? Can we make a new condition? I apologize, events occurred, weather, my 
something happened to my family, something occurred that made it impossible. The last is care. Care is treating people, not in a transactional sense, but really authentically concerned about their well-being as human beings, even when it comes to departing the company. As it happened when I had to let 60 people of our teammates go. It basically, it was not their fault. It was a functions that we had to consolidate in order to save the business. We put in place, you know, places to be able to outsource them, outplace them in ways that we could help. Generous separation schemes, not, at, not, not in any way demeaning their character, their, 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 them as individuals and people. We were concerned for them truly as human beings and hopefully convey that. That's care, care for another person. They're not there as a transaction, how they can benefit you, but you're sincerely concerned about their well-being as, as a person. So I would offer uh, those four lessons, as I do in the book, as the four ways that you yourself know if you're being trustworthy, and also the four ways you can evaluate others in terms, and it takes a bit of time. You have to watch their actions as to whether or not they can be trusted. Beautiful. So I love that we are bringing the conversation to a close on the topic of care, because so often as people looking to build their leadership skills, they're looking for the checklist of things like strategy and communication and building the right organization, and yet being trustworthy and respectful and caring really make the difference between good leaders who can already do strategy and those things. Those are, those are table stakes. The difference to me is often this ability to also deliver that with care and integrity and respect. So Bob, what closing comments do you want to leave our listeners with and then also give them more information about your book and where they could find out about you? Being a leader for me was a incredible gift, a job that I, for some reason, I, I, I sort of caught into maybe because I was collegial by nature and, and collaborative, that was my style. That in my case, the journey was a long one, 35 years. And I don't want to leave the impression at all that I came to the job with this kind of knowledge that we covered today. It was a long journey. It was learned over a long period of time that in my case, I found it in seminars. I found it a lot from my own colleagues who coached me, who helped me who I came after the, the, the second era of near disaster to learn to listen a little bit better, uh, maybe a whole lot better, at least I hope, and just carry on and keep it on. If you like that kind of job, if you like that responsibility, if you, if you think it, it's a gift rather than a burden, which in my case it was, then continue to strive to try to get better and better all the time by learning, by attending seminars, by listening, by listening to podcasts like this one from other people who've been there, done that, tried it. And no one individual, I think, has all the answers. I find that in a book or a seminar, I generally get two or three nuggets out of it, things that I'm particularly wrestling with at that moment in time. And over a lifetime, we come up with lots of nuggets. So this is Bob Rosenberg and Maureen Metcalf, and we are talking about Bob's book, Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned from Running Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you for joining Innovative Leaders, co-creating our future. Please like us on your favorite podcast outlet, leave comments, and most importantly, follow us and share us with others. Bob, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners today. My pleasure, Marie. Thank you for having me.